Well, I, uh, I have to be honest with you. Uh, I'm sitting here this morning, and I, I feel a sense of weight. I feel a sense of heaviness. I feel a sense of, um, yeah, kind of anxiety towards uh, us gathering here today. And I'll, I'll explain to you a little bit of where I'm coming from. So we all witnessed events this week that uh, to many of us were extremely surprising. Uh, and the response to that surprising event uh, filled, if you're a social media person, filled your Facebook feed. And there was an enormous amount of shock, and there are hundreds of articles written with a hundred different perspectives. But there was an anxiety, there was an anxiousness, and I'm going to tell you what, what, what worries me is that the same anxiety expressed by people that don't trust in Jesus is the same anxiety that was expressed by people who do trust in Jesus. And if you're with me and understanding where I'm coming from, this is a bit of a challenge and this is a bit of a problem. We are studying an ancient people that were enslaved for 430 years. In Canada, we're only approaching our 150th year as a nation. 430 years, enough time for 14 or 15 generations of people under slavery, enslaved to a world power, to a world dominance. They were not given democracy. They were not given freedom of speech. They were whipped, enchained, enslaved, abused. Yet in the midst of that, God is doing something. And so when we approach the story of the Exodus, can we just understand that what we've been studying already since the beginning of this fall, we got to apply it to our lives. It's not enough to just read this and go, oh, lovely story that I'll share with my kids at nighttime. This story of an ancient people that may or may not be true. This is or it isn't. And if it's true its implications are enormous and it should affect the way we live. Here's some words from a guy named Jamie Smith. He says this, Imagine being a people who don't think a presidential election means either the salvation of the universe or the end of the world. Imagine being a people who have a long perspective on such matters who are tied to an ancient people that have managed to live peaceful and quiet lives across the centuries, whether in kingdoms or democracies under persecuting tyrants and benevolent queens. This news cycle, this election season, this year, this Congress, these are all blips in time for a people who are looking for kingdom come. And so we shouldn't be surprised by anything. We shouldn't feel like our world is collapsing. We should instead cultivate a kind of healthy distance, not being aloof or indifferent, but nonetheless exhibiting a kind of holy ambivalence that isn't so absorbed by the present moment. We are a stretched people who are older than this campaign and look for a kingdom well beyond it. This is how we respond. Are you with me? Let's go to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 13, 
The story we are studying today and the events of Exodus that we are looking at today are events that are looked back upon in other sections of the scriptures as the event that that characterizes what it means to pass from a life before Christ and a life after Christ. It's the event of the Red Sea. So let's jump in. Verse 17 of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What are, what are we being told? We're being told that, that Israel is being led in a direction that, that is not a direction that you would think that they would go to get to Canaan. God leads them in a direction away from an adversary, away from a group of, group of people that have been trained in military campaigns. You see, Israel, for 430 years, were not practicing their military strength. They were enslaved. They were not practicing how to use a spear. They were not jumping on chariots. They were living under the superpower of that day. And so what God is doing, you have to see this, is God is directing them in a different direction because he's protecting them. He's saying, I don't want you to go towards the Philistines because they'll crush you in a military way and that might freak you out. I can protect you there, but I'm going to lead you in a different direction, uh, another route, which is going to seem a little bit confusing as we continue to read. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. This is a promise and a fulfillment of a promise that Joseph had requested. And they moved on from Succoth, and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. What Moses is telling us is that they're they're out of, they're getting close to being completely out of Egyptian territory. They're almost there. They're 430 years. It's almost come to a complete close. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is God. This is a representation of God. God is in this cloud. God is in this fire. It's similar to when we talked about the burning bush. It's not that the bush itself is God. It's a representation of God with his people. As if I were to talk to you on Skype, I have a representation of you through the technology of the computer screen. This is God directing and leading his people. He not only is our protector, he leads us in the way that we should go. I've heard a number of people read this text and say, man, I just wish God would appear to me in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Wouldn't that be amazing? If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to to know that, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit who guides us, leads us, protects us gives us encouragement, nourishes our soul. We have God. Yet here in this text, here are the children of Israel following a visible representation of God before them, leading them in the way that they should go. 
verse 1 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hereth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. This is very important. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. What God is doing here is God is setting something up that will put the final nail in the coffin as far as who is the most powerful God. Whose God gets the ultimate glory? We, we read in this text that, that God is aware that in the wilderness, the Egyptians might be aware of where their position. Likely, there are a number of Egyptian people that are on the outskirts and are probably relaying information back to Pharaoh to say, here's where they are. This is how far they've gotten. In the days of Pharaoh, Pharaoh is a polytheist believing in many gods. And what he might have assumed is that they've put so much effort and so much attention of the God of Israel, putting so much attention into the plagues, that maybe at this point, that God is now taking his finger off of the Israelites and is not going to care about them. This is quite common in Egyptian religion, that we have many gods, and gods kind of care about things at some point, and then don't care about things at another point. So for him, he's thinking, okay, they're in the wilderness. God's put a lot of energy into the plagues. He's now probably going to pull off of them, and this is our time to get glory over Israel and destroy them in the wilderness. But God is setting something else up. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? This is a perspective. They were under us. What have we done? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, the people of Israel going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hareth in front of Baal-Zephon. Are you getting a picture of what's going on here? Are you getting a picture that the Israelites have left they're journeying away. They're, they're kind of coming to a place where they're, they're going to be stuck. God's directed them into a position of, okay, there's the sea there, and now these uh, Egyptians are coming from this other direction. They're really stuck. There's nowhere for them to go. God is setting this up. What are we going to do? Where, where are we going to go from here? When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Okay, this is bizarre. Okay? Let's think about what's happened over the last number of months. The plagues. 
10 acts of God to show the people of Israel and the Egyptians that I am the most powerful God. Yet here Israel stands on what the brink of they feel is disaster. Oh, so God didn't want us to die in Goshen. He wanted us to die here in the wilderness. Now, before we continue to mock the Israelites, let's, let's take a bit of a step back, okay? Here's the first point we need to make. We all need saved from outward and internal bondage. Let's think about this for a second. Outward and internal bondage. So outward in that the Israelites were no longer in slavery. But what's their perspective? What's going on here? Well, there are people that they saw the plagues. They saw how powerful God was. And so they likely began to assume that as soon as we go into the wilderness, God's just going to make the conquering of Canaan really, really easy. So their identity is wrapped up not in the fact that God saved them. Their identity is wrapped up in freedom. That The love is not for God and who he is and what God is capable of. The love that they want is the freedom that they feel like they can experience. The love is the wilderness. The love is Canaan. So what has happened is that they've really diverted their loves. Augustine, brilliant Augustine, said that one of the things that, that he saw is, as, we talked about, as he talked about the meaning of life or the problem with the human heart is that the problem with the human heart is that it loves things more than it loves God. And as soon as you love something more than you love God, that thing takes priority for your identity, for your purpose, for your ultimate freedom and satisfaction. So here's how it works, okay? Do you want to go a little bit beneath the surface? On the outside, the external bondage is you maybe feel, like in many ways, well, I don't, let's use an example of uh, lust. Well, I don't physically sleep with somebody that's not my spouse. I don't uh, physically sleep with the images that I see on the computer. But internally, what's going on? Your desire is maybe for control over the body that you are taking in as you walk around campus or the city or your workplace and you see an attractive person. You start creating movies in your mind of, of things. So you're maybe celebrating the fact, well, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm not engaging. Jesus said, if you look at someone with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. So you, you need safe from your external bondage, but you also need safe from your internal bondage. Let's say you decide that, well, the meaning that I find in life is that I really need to help, uh, I really need to help people in our society that are marginalized, that are pushed away. Some people in the area of philosophy have studied what is the meaning of life. And if the meaning of life is not that there is a God whom, whom you serve, then the meaning of life can maybe be found in love relationships or uh, in things that you participate in. And what others have decided is that that's, that's a created meaning for yourself. But then what others in the philosophical realm decide is, well, what if your meaning then is not to go and better yourself by relationships, but what if your bettered meaning is to go and help somebody else? That that's the purpose of your existence, is to help other people solely. 
But what you see as you study that more is that actually becomes incredibly selfish because you're helping other people to solve a problem within your own heart of I want to make myself feel better in the world, so the best way that I can make myself feel better is to go and be a philanthropist because it'll make me feel better. So you're actually driven by selfish desires when you're helping out other people. So the love is not loving God. The love is loving self and how it makes me feel to do good things for other people. Do you understand that? You see how sometimes convoluted our minds can be? And that as soon as we think, okay, there's this external way that I'm free. Like the Israelites, we're free from Egypt. We're now here. But their identity now is wrapped up in the promise of what is to come rather than in the one that has promised it to them. This is why sometimes I get tired of accountability groups if all you're focused on is external bondage. Because you get together in your accountability circle. It's like, oh man, I've been judging people hard this week. Oh, naughty you. You should not judge people. Slap, slap. Next person. What's your issue? Oh, I just, I can't, I can't stop spending money. You're bad. You need to stop spending your money. Next person. And you go around this thing, it's like a confession circle. But you've solved no problems. You've just slapped people's hands. You haven't gotten to the internal bondage. Tell me why you're judging people. What is going on inside your heart? Is it approval? You think you're better than them? Is it power, who you are? Is it your status? Maybe you then, you then go on to spending money. Well, why are you spending money? Why do you feel the need to spend money? Well, my life is wrapped up in, in stuff. Why is your life wrapped up in stuff? Because I need to be comforted by my stuff. Okay, well, you said you trusted Jesus, so why don't you trust Jesus for that in your life, to provide comfort? This is a fantastic kid's book. It's called You Are Mine, and I've been reading it to Nixon. And it's a take on uh, Max Licato wrote this book called You Are Special, and then he wrote a, a sequel to it called You Are Mine. And it's a story about these Wemmicks in Wemmicksville that are made by a woodcarver named Eli. And the Wemmicks get caught up in buying boxes and balls. And the, the test of the book is that who can collect the most boxes and balls? And, and this little punchinella, well, he ends up buying into this. He, he works all the time to buy more boxes and balls. He doesn't sleep. He sells his house to buy more boxes and balls. And then there's a situation in which he stumbles into the woodcarver's uh, sh- shop. And Eli said, oh, hey, Punchinello, look at all your boxes and balls. And he begins to ask them some questions about the boxes and balls. Incredible discipleship time with Punchinello. And he asks them, um, do you like playing with your boxes and balls? No. Oh, okay. Why do you have them? Because I want to be like everybody else. Because they're all doing it too. And then he begins to go to the deeper level with Punchinello in this simple little kid's book. And he says, the, the lesser problem is actually the fact that you're collecting boxes and balls. The greater internal problem is that you're looking to the boxes and balls for your happiness. See, that's the internal bondage. So you can solve things on the surface, and you can look at somebody and say, wow, they've really got their act together. But they might have internal bondage. So you can say on the surface that I trust God and what he's doing in this world. But if the internal bondage is, what, what just happened south of us? There's no way that God's in control. That's what you're saying, because your internal bondage is leading you in that direction. And you and I are exactly like the Israelites standing in the wilderness going, God, did you want us to be buried in the wilderness? 
after they just witnessed incredible things. So we need saved not only from external bondage, we need saved from the internal bondage, which happens at the heart level, to ask the questions of why. So let's see what happens. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Let that sink in. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. What is this act all about? God's glory. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh, his horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of cloud, and pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea was returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, who did this? The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see what happened here? Do you hear the, this story? Like, imagine being there. You're freaking out. Egyptians are coming. They're going to slaughter us. We're going to need burial ground here. God and the pillar of cloud and fire, now he's been their guide. He then transitions behind them to be their protector, to become a wall between the Egyptians and the Israelites so that the Egyptians cannot go and kill the Israelites. He then instructs Moses, take that staff, which as we talked about before, is kind of like carrying your passport. It's your signal of, this is the power of God here. Use your staff, raise it. 
the instructions here of, of like what happens is that the, there's walls. In the Hebrew, it's like it's become like a walled city going hugely into the air. And the Israelites now walk through, not on ground that's kind of murky, but it says on dry ground. And they go in. And as they go in, then God transitions and moves. And the Egyptians go, well, they did it. Let's go in too. And God is part of that. And God begins working of what is going on there. He's hardening their heart. He's clogging their wheels. The Israelites get to the other side. And notice what it says. At daybreak, God instructs. Why daybreak? So the Israelites can completely see what is about to happen. It's not in the night. Watch what I am going to do. Moses, make it happen. Like, this is crazy! But this is what it tells us. And this is why it's so powerful for our salvation and why this is referred to over and over again is that the only way that we can be saved from external and internal bondage is by grace through faith. The only way the Israelites could be saved in this instance is if God did something. And the only way for you to cross over from life before God to life after God is by God's grace. The only way that you can be saved is by God's grace through your faith, trusting in that. This is how this is so countercultural. Because people believe that they can save themselves. And what they end up doing is they go, I'll just do all of the good stuff that I need to do and that will save me. It's called works righteousness. So I'll work my way into God's good books. And this is the difference between all religions and Christianity and that Christianity says you can't do it yourself. Only God and his grace can get you across to the other side. Through the gift of of Jesus. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel reality is that we are saved by the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith. That we trust in what Jesus has done for us. That we trust in how he can get us to the other side. We don't trust in, well, you know what? I can do a lot more better things than you can. And then this breeds in pride of I'm better than you. Friends, our faith is exemplified in our works. You can't separate them like we talked about last week. But it's faith in God's grace that he has accomplished something for us that we could not accomplish on our own. People will read this story of the Red Sea and go, that is impossible. So is your salvation. Unless God steps in and creates a way. And think about this. It's not that like once you become a Christian, you're freed, you, you start like, you no more struggle with external and internal bondage. Right? 
So even the fact that you're still saved in light of the fact that sometimes you still struggle with external and internal bondage is a gift once again of his grace. This is why it should drive us insane when, our, when we ourselves and the other people that call themselves Christians begin to think that they're better than the world and everybody else. Because we're saved by the same grace. You know, one of the responses to the election this week has been really pride around, well, I'm, I'm a better human being than Donald Trump is. Let's pray that he comes to Christ because by the same grace that he would be saved from is the same grace that you're freed from. So who are you to cast judgment and, and, and your feelings of, of anger towards him? We, we pray for our leaders we pray that the leader of North Korea comes to know Christ when there's thousands of Christians enslaved in concentration camps. We, we pray for the world. We pray that God's grace would become evident. I was talking to somebody this week, and they were asked a question by a coworker that, that essentially along the lines of, like, Donald Trump claims to be a Christian. What's that all about? And this person I was talking to felt convicted because it was like, my coworkers should know that what he represents is not authentic and real Christianity because of the way I live my life. So don't point your fingers before pointing your fingers at yourself and saying, how am I representing what it looks like to follow Christ? What am I representing when it comes to having a hope beyond this world? What am I representing when it comes that I'm saved by grace through faith? Does the world look on and say, that person has a confidence beyond the powers of this world? That person has an authenticity that is beyond this world. Because we look forward to a kingdom when Christ will return and all will be made right. Justice will be done. Justice will be served. Because let's be honest, we will never get the justice we feel like we deserve. But God is the judge. And one day we look forward to when he will return, but it will also be a day of, of reckoning for those that have not put their hope and faith and trust in Jesus. And if you want justice that you feel like needs to be done to the world leaders that are not serving in a just way, if you want that for only certain types of individuals, you have to realize that anybody outside of grace through faith is guilty. And if anything, doesn't the results of this elections and people's response to us show us that there is such thing as absolute truth? Because in the core of our being, we're going, this can't be right. If truth is subjective, you can't ultimately say that. Because you're claiming absolutes on something that you're saying is subjective. That what is true for you is not true for me. Well, then those that elected him are open to their belief of what truth is. 
Don't be all high and mighty saying that we couldn't have our truth when you've said that you want yours. Does this make sense? Do you see the convoluted hypocrisy of that? Friends, we are saved from our internal and external bondage by grace through faith, and that radically changes the way we respond to the events of this world. Radically. Let's see what happens. Let's see how the Israelites respond. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. How, how, how do we respond when we see God do incredible things? How do we respond when we see that God has done an, an incredible thing, not only here at the Red Sea, but in our hearts, in saving us, and in our lives? According to here, the only best way to respond is is through praise, is through worship. This is why we sing in our gatherings. Because we're coming in from the week of all this confusion and distraction, and we're going, God, remind me of who you are, and remind me that I don't have to be freaking out about everything. May I respond to who you are. May I respond to what you've done. And so we sing. Now you might be saying, man, I'm I'm just not a good singer. That's okay. I'm sure a lot of us aren't. Doesn't mean we don't sing. You may say, well, I don't, I don't respond to God in song. I respond to God in journaling or through all this. That's fine too. But respond to him. This is why people raise their hands because they're saying, God, I, I can't do it on my own. It's, a, it's a, a way of surrender when they're raising their hands. Surrender to you, God. I'm reaching up to you because I don't get it but I know you're faithful. So here the Israelites respond. They say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed on the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide them my spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. What does God do? You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. You see what they're saying is, not only have God, you gotten a great victory over Egypt, the people in Canaan are probably shaking in their boots at what you've just done. That if you could get your people out of slavery, look out, we're coming for our land. 
Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This song talks about who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. Talks about God's glory, reflects on the name of God, that he's a personal God, that he's a covenant-keeping God, that he's a warrior, that he's unique, and that he's loving. It talks of God's salvation, talks about how God has redeemed us. Because here it is, friends, we are saved by our mediator, so it says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So you can go to God with all of your <laughs> obedience, but if you haven't trusted in his Son and his gift of grace, You haven't gotten yourself there. Because only he can save us. Only he can save you, and only he can save me. We need his righteousness. Hebrews 9, 13 to 15, For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised and eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. What, what this means is that we are bought back and we're brought into a new relationship with God. This is incredible. You know, as I said last week, a man said, he said, until our sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until we realize how offside we are with God, not only in our external, but also our internal bondage, we will not see his gift of grace as the incredible gift that it is. We were singing in the song earlier about the wonderful cross. To you I give my life and my all. Did you realize that line when you sang it? That because of this wonderful cross, I give you my life and my all. My all. Not just 20%. Not 50%. I give you my all. What you say, I do. What you've commanded, I trust. My life, my all, because you've given all for me. If you don't think he's given your all for you, you'll struggle to want to give your all for him. If you don't see how broken and how enslaved you are, you won't see that you need his sacrifice for you. 
as it was an impossible feat at the Red Sea, so was the impossible feat of bringing a broken people into right relationship with a perfect and holy God. Yet God made a way through Jesus. This morning we're going to celebrate this incredible truth by taking communion with one another. We're going to celebrate the the parting of the sea that we get to cross over by grace. We're going to celebrate our mediator who has made a way for us. We're going to say, thank you, God, that, that you didn't leave me to be taken by the Egyptians. I thank you, God, that you provided a way for me to go from that death, that inevitable death, and you brought me to a place of eternal life. Now, you might be, be somebody, and you're sitting here, and you're like, I don't get it. How could I ever accept a gift like that? Or maybe you want to continue around the way of, I can save myself by doing X number of things. You can keep at it. I'm telling you, eventually you'll come to an end because you'll realize, I, I can't do it all. Christianity says you need to come to the end of yourself so that you understand that you have everything from God. But you can't save yourself. And only God could save you. And he's provided that because he loves you. He's compassionate towards you. He protects you. As he stood in the way of the Egyptians coming at the Israelites, he stands in the way of right justice and judgment upon sin. So as we reflect, be reminded of what has been done for you, the incredible gift that has been given to you. And as you look back and as you reflect on the crossing of the Red Sea, may it be a symbol of what God has done for you through Jesus. Today we're doing communion differently than we did the last time. We're going to have different people standing in different parts of the gym here. We'd ask that during this kind of response instrumental music time that you stand and you, you go over and you get the, the bread and you get the juice. Uh, if you have some allergies or dietary restrictions, I believe we have some options for you at our welcome tent. Or actually at the back, the very back, gluten-free. Just don't let this moment pass without remembering and thanking God for what he has done that the impossibility of the Red Sea was also your impossibility of getting yourself to the other side. But God has made a way through Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you are over it all. I pray, God, that we would live as a different people, a changed people. I pray, God, that the events of the Exodus, a part of our history, would shape, God, how we live and respond in the day and age in which we do. God, if we're left to our own devices, we will be like the Israelites crying out and asking for our slavery back. But God, you are so good that you don't want us to live and stay in that slavery. And so you've given us and provided a way. This is good news. This is the best news the world could ever hear. So God, I pray that in these these times, God, that the church would become the city on a hill. God, that the church would become the place where authentic faith and true 
grace-motivated people where they are. And then may the world see that and not the false representation, the false teachers. But may they desire and see that the gospel is the greatest news ever. And may we be changed by it as we live in this world. Thank you, Jesus. I'm sorry I didn't uh, clarify if we're to hold on to it or to take it. So you've already taken it. Well done. (laughs) If you haven't, we're going to take it together. You know, there's a couple of different ways to respond. And sometimes these these ways, um, they can be, in one way, very unhelpful. And the one way is to sit in shame and say, don't look at me, I'm wretched. I'm terrible. And to live life as if you are just a sack of marbles. Or to carry a weight on your back of all the things you've ever done. And so to approach communion, you, you take it, but you're still overwhelmed by your shame. You don't need to be overwhelmed with shame. Because when you grovel to shame, what you forget is that Christ has done everything necessary to take your sin upon himself. So you don't need to grovel in shame. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has done everything necessary. So therefore, another response to communion is, Holy is the Lord Almighty and worthy is the Lamb that was slain, that he saw my situation and got involved with me. How could you love me that much? You know, I discipline Nixon, even at just over two. I make sure that as I sit him on my lap, And I try to get him to understand what he has done. That once he acknowledges and he apologizes, I say, Nixon, I love you and I'm proud of you. But because I love you so much, I can't let you continue to walk in your disobedience. And this is the love of the Father towards us. So this is another way that we can respond. To understand that, yes, we are broken but we are so loved. So as we recognize how much we are loved, let's take communion together. Good morning, church. It's funny, as Matt was talking there, um, I wrote a piece for all of you this morning, and it's funny how, as we're talking about (laughs) this sermon and the fact that we've been saved by grace and grace alone. It's amazing to me to think that, like Matt was saying, we are any better than anybody else on this earth. And what's funny too is I didn't actually even look at the passage that we were going through this morning. I just went off the title. It's cool how God works. So this is for all of you who are struggling, who are wrestling and need to know the assurance that you have in Jesus. This one's called prone to wonder. Or who is like you, O Lord? You can tell I'm nervous. 
prone to wander. Lord, I feel prone to wander from the magnificence of the God who made me. How could I ever question the significance of the Lord who saved me? He is the only one who gave me my first breath. He is the only one who allowed me to even take my first step. He knows everything. He knows every single piece of my being. He knows me. He knows my heart and all my thoughts. He sees how these eyes have become so full of lust. Yet he still says to me that he never regrets when he laid down his own life and he paid for my debt. His love is able to put my soul to rest. He made this empty vessel alive with a single breath. But how much longer will I go on chasing these empty temptations that have captivated my fascinations and have left me and going in opposite directions? My soul yearns for your presence, forgiveness, and love. But I know what I've done. So I continue to retreat into the darkness for protection. I seek after reconciliation and perfection, yet I feel separation. I guess it's my own fault since I've been lacking in conversation. And every time I hear and read about your crucifixion and resurrection, I start to doubt your love for me because of my transgressions. See, God, I live in rebellion. I'm a murderer. I'm a liar. And I'm just holding on to these weapons. And I always question, God, am I destined for heaven? Or I'm going to be a slave for the rest of my life on his way to his execution. And see, I say I love you, but I still continue to give in to my sin. I walk around as a man with so many failures and it's waging war in me. I'm prone to fear and I'm prone to wander. Every single thought I have is taken over. The sin that has me struggling has my heart crippling under the weight of this infection that has been rippling. It's been flowing through my veins since the day that Adam and Eve started listening to the devil's whispering. Oh God, how is it that I can be valued by you? How is it that you would show me favor even though I never wanted you? I claim to be a follower, but I would never take my faith past these pews. God, why would you ever want a man like me after all I've put myself through? Can't you see that I'm a sinner and my life isn't pure? I don't mean to question you, but are you really, are you really sure? Maybe you have me mistaken for somebody who's a little bit more mature. How could you use a man like me? After all, my thoughts aren't always pure. But see, these questions have me slipping in the direction. And it's time for me to get off this path and get off of this detour. But who is like you, God? God, I need you to intervene. Open these eyes so I can see the grace and love that you have given to me. Release me from my pride and greed. Crush it before it begins to sprout and proceed. Show me that I am nothing without you and that your son has come and truly set me free. Take me to the place that I was destined to be. Take me as I am. May I never take my eyes off of the heavenly you were the one who formed me inside of my mother and said to me on the day that you had rescued me, 
come follow me. You know my deepest secrets and fears. You know what I've been hiding behind these closed doors for years. You know everything about me. You know every sin that I've committed that seems to be branching out of me. Oh God, unite in my heart to the one who bled and covered all of my iniquity. You told me I was made for something more. Give me bravery to see past and to see your majesty. Let me see past this slavery. Show me who I was meant to be. May I no longer walk in the dark, but in the light that has said I am free. So I ask you again, who is like you, O God? Is there anyone who can compare to him? Is there any other God who is greater? Who is like you, O Lord? No one is like you. May you say to my heart that I am your salvation. Release me from the starvation. Be the rock that secures my foundation. Holy Spirit, come into this temple and start your renovation. Remove everything inside of my heart that needs modification. And place inside of my heart a light that is so bright that it's brighter than any star in our constellation. Make me lesser of who I was and make me more into the one who died so I could taste the salvation. Remove everything that keeps me from living. Help me pick up my cross so I can get back to dying to my flesh because I'm sick and tired of listening to its feelings. Some days I wish my heart would just simply stop beating. I guess I'm feeling this way because I'm listening to the enemy when he's whispering. But at the same time, I know you are always with me. And you haven't stopped listening. Even when I'm questioning and doubting, you've never stopped pursuing. Your word is what I need to keep myself from sinking. But why have I become so deaf to what you've always been telling me? Is it because I've spent so many late nights weeping, begging you to take these chains off of me? I know I'm saved. So why would a slave want to go back to the same place that he came? To be honest, it's hard for me to believe you've paid for everything. After all, my sin is something that I have a hard time releasing. What can I say, God? I guess I don't know what it's like to live when I've always felt so hollow inside. Lord, please hear me as, I still, as I'm still here wondering if you're still listening. Help me to keep my eyes on you so I can keep on fighting. Even if my knuckles become bloody and my knees start hurting, help me keep my eyes on the finish line even if I have to make it across crawling. So again, I'll ask you, church, I'll ask you, who is like him? Who is like our God? The heavens proclaim the majesty of his workmanship. The heavens declare the beauty of his lordship. All things that I see before my eyes and our eyes, he has ownership. All things were made through him, which makes him brilliant. His wealth is abundant. His glory is excellent. His power goes beyond measurement. And his love and grace is sufficient. If we were to match anything up against him, it would just be an embarrassment. He is the creator. And he is the sculptor. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one and only author. There is no other. He gives pulse to our hearts. He gives us breath inside our lungs. He gives us sight to our eyes. He gives us meaning to our lives. He is forever magnificent. He is forever the conductor using us as his instrument. The stars are merely the outer skirt of his garment. Who is like you, O God? And if you find anybody who compares to him, tell him to take a seat. Because when the trumpets blow, we know our king is coming.